Welcome back, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Once again, your host, Drew Von Sayo, set to bring you the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, Pittsburgh Pirates, and more. Starting today with the hockey side of things, as training camp did, in fact, just begin for the Pittsburgh Penguins up in Cranberry, Pennsylvania. And as I mentioned last week, one of the things that I was going to be talking about was the fact that this truly is a prove-it year for Kasperi Kapanen. Of course, Kapanen did not have the best year last season. He really hadn't done well for the Penguins since things got shut down due to the pandemic. So it's been two seasons of rather disappointment for Kasperi Kapanen. And now is dealing with a lot of pressure as far as needing to produce and the fans already turning on him. Of course, they had already turned on him after the 2021-2022 season, the 56-game regular season in which it was all divisional play that year. Fans had already turned on Kisberry Kapanen. Last season was just adding fuel to the fire. Of course, Kapanen had started last season on Evgeny Malkin's line, bounced around a little bit between the second and the third line, primarily found his home on the third line with Jeff Carter. Now, as I said last week, my thoughts on Jeff Carter are very clear. He is not good enough anymore to be the third line center. However, I will say that Kasperi Kapanen has found his home on the third line. I think that's arguably the best place for him. The only other place that it would make sense to utilize Kasperi Kapanen is if you moved him up to the first line with Gensel and Crosby, and then you had a second line of Raquel, Malkin, and Rust. However... I don't necessarily see Mike Sullivan moving Kisberry Kapanen up to the first line when he hasn't done anything to prove why he should be on that first line. However, if those line combinations were to go into effect of Gensel, Crosby, Kapanen, along with the second line of Raquel, Malkin, and Rust, I think it would be a very strong first and second line combination for the Penguins. And then you have your third line be Jason Zucker, unfortunately Jeff Carter, because it doesn't seem like he's going to get moved down to the fourth line. And then on the right wing, you go with somebody like Dan Heinen. And then you have ending up having three solid lines. I have stressed this time and time again here on this show. The NHL is an evolving game, just like every sports league. Having three solid lines is not a luxury anymore. It's a necessity. Having four solid lines is now being pushed towards a necessity, not something that's an even greater luxury. And again, that's just how the game is changing. Players are developing much quicker. Players are much faster, stronger. And so it has to be at least three solid lines, if not four, 
for the Penguins. And again, line combinations aren't necessarily my issue right now. The point is, is that Kasperi Kapanen has to really bounce back this season. Get back to the way he played in the 2019-2020 season before it was ultimately cut short and they went right into the playoffs because of the pandemic. That was the Kasperi Kapanen Jim Rutherford traded for. That was the Kasperi Kapanen that Jim Rutherford drafted originally, traded Kapanen to Toronto in order to get Phil Kessel, and then gave up a first-round draft pick to reacquire Kasperi Kapanen. That is what the Penguins need out of Kasperi Kapanen. I mean, you look at his time with the Penguins, Kisberry Kapanen, and while he only played in five games for the Pens prior to the pandemic, it was, rather that was the playoffs where he played five games. It was still a very solid outing for Kisberry Kapanen. He went out there, looked like he was going to be a difference maker, and he was. He had a pair of assists in those playoff games. And that is what the Penguins need from Kapanen. You know, the goal scoring is obviously a big part of it, but it's really just going out there and having him produce. If he's taking the ice and tacking on two assists over the course of three games and then scoring once every three games, that's the production you take and that you want out of Kisberry Kapanen because it's consistency. And that's the biggest thing that I've mentioned when it comes to really any player across any sport, but specifically hockey. It has to be about the consistency. If you can go out there and continue to consistently put up points, whether it's goals or assists, and you keep that up over the course of a full 82-game season, then you will have no problems getting minutes, and you will have no problems staying in the lineup. When you look at Kapanen's numbers over the past two seasons. Of course, 2020-2021 was the abbreviated season. He played 40 out of 56 games, 30 points, 11 of them goals. Last season, 79 of 82 games played, 32 points, 11 goals. So when you look at points per game, it's a drastic decrease in numbers for Kisberry Kapanen, despite putting up very similar numbers in terms of goals, which are both 11, and then he tacked on two more assists in this past season than he did the season prior. But again, it's that points-per-game statistic that is making his assists and goals be much more spread out and showing that he is not producing. Kapanen was set to go to arbitration. The Penguins and Kapanen ultimately agreeing to a three-year, $3 million deal on one year. Now, this, this is why I'm saying 
it's a prove it year for Kisberry Kapanen because the Penguins are not going to continue to pay him $3 million plus to go out there and produce the way he has the past two seasons. They're just not going to do it. And so, like I said last week with Jeff Carter, like I said last week with Jason Zucker, this is the year for Kisberry Kapanen to make himself known. Because if he doesn't, he could very well find himself on a new team next year. Especially when you look at the Penguins' prospects, the few that are still strong in the system that has been very depleted. I'm talking about guys like Samuel Pauline, Valtteri Pustinen, and Philip Hollander. I mean, rather, Philip Hollander was traded away, but guys like Pauline, Valtteri Pustinen, those guys are up and coming. They are knocking on the door of the NHL. They are ready to prove themselves that they belong in the league. And then you even look at guys like Drew O'Connor, who hasn't found himself regular NHL time yet. He's looking to do just that. So there's a lot of young players in the Penguin system that have either already made their NHL debut or looking to make their NHL debut sooner rather than later that could very well find themselves pushing somebody like Kasperi Kapanen out of a line spot. And if that's what happens, that's what happens. Because to be quite honest, the Penguins do need to get younger. And they do need to go out there and show people that just because Crosby, Malkin, and Latang are you know, 34, 35, 36 years old, that they can still go out there and play. But even if they aren't out there, then you have the next wave of players for the Penguins to keep them competitive and supplement the players like Jake Gensel, like Ricard Raquel, and go out there and find ways to... I don't want to say necessarily eliminate, you know, the lapse of time between one contention window and the next, but more so minimize it. Because, like I've said before, the New York Rangers did exactly that. They minimized the downtime between when they were a contender and when they were not a contender. That was, that time frame was two, maybe at the absolute most, three seasons. And they were back out there in the playoffs and now look like a very strong team. That is what the Penguins need to do as far as going out and minimizing that lapse as to when they are contender and when they aren't. And another name that I was thinking of when I mentioned Philip Hollander earlier was Nathan Legare. He was the one that I was trying to process along with Pauline and Valtteri Pustinen. Of course, Hollander was as well when he was a part of the organization, but was unfortunately traded away. The Penguins have a lot of talent in those three of Legare, Pustinen, 
and Pauline. So it's not necessarily going to be an easy decision for Mike Sullivan when it comes to narrowing down the roster. And Mike Sullivan has already said that Samuel Pauline looks like an entirely different player than he did last season, like an entirely different player that he did a year ago. And he only continues to get better. And as he only continues to get better, it's going to make the decision more and more difficult for Ron Hextall and Mike Sullivan to keep him down in Wilkes-Barre Scranton. And that goes for any of them, whether it's Pauline, Houstonen, Legare, even somebody like Ty Smith that the Penguins just acquired from the New Jersey Devils in place of John Marino. Ty Smith is a guy who could very well see himself in Wilkes-Barre Scranton simply because he's able to clear He's able to go down to Wilkes-Barre without having to clear waivers first. And so, like I said already, that could be a difference maker in terms of lineup construction for the Penguins. And Valtteri Pustinen has looked very good so far in camp. Pustinen was running with Crosby and with Gensel a little bit ago. And Pustinen looked like he fit right in. Of course, when you've seen some of the wingers that Crosby and Gensel have played with, and I'm referencing the Connor Sherrys of the game, Crosby has this element about him that elevates the level of play of everyone on the ice. Of course, he's done it with Gensel, but Gensel is a solid talent of his own to the point where he could be on any line and succeed. Gensel does not need to rely on Crosby to go out there and produce. And I'm not implying that Valtteri Pustinen would be the same way. I'm not saying that Pustinen is only going to look good as a Penguin if he's on the first line with Crosby and Gensel. But for a young rookie, I shouldn't even say rookie because he hasn't even made his debut yet. As a young prospect who is still developing, still trying to crack a way into the NHL roster, going out there and playing very well with Crosby and with Gensel, it's going to turn some heads. It's going to raise some questions about how they can find a way to get you into the team. And if by some chance Pustinen does not end up making the roster out of training camp, then he is going to end up being one of the very first to get called up when there's an injury or something along those lines. Because let's be real here. We're talking about the Pittsburgh Penguins, who seem like they can never go through an entire season without having between three to five guys hurt at the same time. Whether it's forwards, defensemen, goaltenders, a combination of all three. The Penguins can very rarely stay healthy for much of the season. And I'm sure that's something that every team across the league deals with. But it's more noticeable when you follow one specific team like I do with the Penguins. And so, Pustinen, Pauline, Legare, they are all going to get their chances at some point this season. Pustinen might get the first crack. It might be Pauline. Whoever doesn't get the first crack, the other one's going next, and then Leg RA will be right behind them. Because those three, as I said already, are extremely talented, 
They can go out there, be a game changer, and when you've got Pauline getting complimented by Sullivan, saying he continues to improve, Pustin and flashing with Crosby and with Gensel. I mean, those are the kinds of things that you want out of players that Jim Rutherford drafted very highly and was very keen on. You know, Jim Rutherford traded away first-round draft picks like it was candy on Halloween. And Rutherford held on to Pustin and held on to Pauline and held on to Legare. Now, mind you, Pauline was only drafted in 2019, so he was one of the later first-round draft picks of Jim Rutherford. But Pauline could very well have not even been a Penguin. Rutherford could have traded away the 2019 first-round draft pick, and then the Penguins don't end up with Samuel Pauline. You know, they could have traded away the, the draft pick that got them Valtteri Pustinen or Nathan Legare. And... Like I said, I understand why Rutherford was aggressive at times as far as when it came to trading picks, trading prospects. But I also would have appreciated it more if he was a little bit conservative with those picks, a little bit more conservative with those prospects. Because now Ron Hextall is really trying to build things back up to the level it needs to be. The minor league system that the Penguins have, aside from those three and a handful of names, including some of the guys that Ron Hextall has already drafted, the Penguins minor league system is still not where it needs to be. It is still very much towards the bottom in terms of the league rankings. And the Penguins have to go out there, try to continue to not only make the Stanley Cup playoffs, because when you have Crosby, Malkin, and Latang, that's an expectation. Go out there and make deep playoff runs while also continuing to find ways to get younger and continue to find ways to draft prospects that you know at some point down the line are hopefully going to make an impact. And, you know, the NHL, it's not like the NFL where, you know, players get drafted and they're immediately thrown into the NHL. Of course, unless you go by the name of Sidney Crosby, and then you're thrown into the NHL right away. Most of these guys spend several seasons either in the ECHL, the AHL, or even back overseas if they are from a foreign country. The Penguins would then loan them back to a team within their country just to allow them to continue playing. And... They spend several years in that phase of the game before even being considered to get called up to the NHL. So there's not necessarily a guarantee that every draft pick is going to work out. That guarantee isn't even in a league like the NFL. But the NHL especially, along with baseball too, because they are very much similar in terms of minor league development, but these players have odds against them when it comes to making it to the NHL. Very high odds against them. It's not necessarily the greatest chance. And the further you get taken in the draft, the less those chances become of you finding your way 
into the NHL as well. And so, again, it's just an opportunity for the Penguins to continue to add on to the minor league system and continue to go out there and contend for Stanley Cups while you have Crosby under contract along with Evgeny Malkin and Chris Letang fresh on their contracts as well. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. When we return, the latest around the NFL, taking a look at Week 2's results and also a preview of Week 3 right here on the Three Rivers Talk Show. Bye. 
back here on the Three Rivers Talk Show discussing the latest now with NFL Week 2 and also looking at Week 3 once again in the studio with me, Dylan Bazika. Dylan, welcome back. Hey, Jerry, how you doing, man? Well, I was good up until about uh, 8.15 last night, and then things <laughs> kind of took a turn south. Steelers lost, huh? Yeah, don't remind me. <laughs> That's a two-game losing streak for y'all now. Are you doing okay? I don't even know. I mean, it is what it is. To be quite honest, we're lucky it's not a three-game losing streak. I mean, the Steelers very easily right now could be 0-3. And, and the schedule ahead of them over the next five weeks, aside from to next week's game in week four against the Jets, it's looking rather rough. And I don't know what the Steelers are going to do. Mike Tomlin is adamant on sticking with Mitch Trubisky. He's adamant on sticking with Matt Canada to call the plays. I mean, I don't know if I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if anything's going to change. And if it doesn't, I would expect very similar results because it's frustrating to see this, but the Steelers apparently aren't willing to make the changes necessary to take a step forward, whether that change being having somebody else call the plays, whether that be personnel changes on the field, I truly don't know. And it appears as if Mike Tomlin's just going to keep it business as usual and stick with the same guys. So in that regard, it's extremely frustrating. Yeah, but Mitch Trubisky did look, <clears throat> he did look very well last night. He was taking some more deep shots. It was a good thing to see. And the offensive line actually played pretty good up until the fourth quarter, only giving up that one sack and the like two minutes left in the game. But I thought Mitch Trubisky did very well. He went 20 for 32, 207, had a QB, uh, QB rating of 81, which isn't, I mean, it's solid, but yeah, Najee looked, I don't know, like some plays Najee looked very well in some plays he was just like, because that foot injury he had, looked mm-hmm. like that was still bugging him. But I mean, it's going to be one of those things that just probably bugs him all season. And that's why the, the emergence of Jalen Warren has really helped the Steelers. You know, Jalen Warren had four carries for 30 yards last night. I don't understand why he didn't get fed the ball more when he's averaging seven and a half yards per carry. But then again, you could say the same thing about Cleveland for the longest time. Nick Chubb only had 10 carries and he was averaging seven yards a carry. And then they finally went back to him in the fourth quarter when they were trying to kill the clock. So I'm just very surprised that Warren isn't getting utilized as much. I'm even more surprised that Trubisky eclipsed the 200-yard mark because that seemed like mission impossible for him, although he still didn't throw a passing touchdown yesterday. He ran one, ran in, one in, but so, I mean, in a way, it was nice seeing a quarterback make a play with their legs because Steelers fans, we haven't seen that since probably about seven, eight years ago with Big Ben, but, I mean, my God, Trubisky, you've got to find a way to hit somebody in the end zone mm-hmm. with your arm. But your Broncos won last week against the Texans, Dylan. Talk a little bit about that game. Yeah, it was a very close game. Uh, I thought it was gonna. I thought the Broncos were gonna win by a lot more than what they did. But the offense just couldn't. Again, more red zone problems. Once we got in the red zone, could not capitalize and score any points. Now it was nine, 
we were losing nine to six up until the fourth quarter. Then Russell Wilson finally threw a touchdown pass to Eric Sauber for 22 yards, and that pretty much sealed the deal for the Broncos. The defense it played well, but they're like offense. We just got to fix the miscommunication on offense. Now, granted, we have a new OC, new head coach, new QB, new everything. So it's going to take some time for them to really gel together, and I think Denver will be just fine. A lot of high-scoring games around the league last week in Week 2. I mean, you had Miami knocking off Baltimore 42-38 before defeating the Steelers last night. Cleveland losing in the final seconds to the Jets 31-30. The Lions beating the Commanders 36-27. I mean, a lot of... High-scoring games around the league, L.A. Rams defeating Atlanta 31-27. As much as a lot of teams have put emphasis on the defense, Dylan, it's really been the offenses that have been the deciding factor early on here in the NFL. Yeah, we're seeing a lot more high-powered offenses nowadays in the NFL. And, yeah, like you said, there was a lot of high-scoring games. Now, one game I really liked was the Cardinals versus the Raiders. That game ended up 29-23. And I saw something. It was a bunch of Raider fans uh, before the fourth quarter started popping champagne because they were up 23-7. to And then their defense just absolutely blew it in the fourth quarter and ultimately giving up 26 unanswered points to the Cardinals, which was insane. And don't get me wrong. You know, that would have been the Raiders' first win of the season, but popping champagne bottles over a regular season game, not even an NFL wild card game, not the Super Bowl, but week two of the NFL season. And it was their home opener as well. So regardless, yeah. I mean, that seems rather excessive. It's it's Raider fans. They're in <laughs> Vegas. I mean, you know, I mean I mean what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas anyways, but I just like I said, that seems Rather excessive to me. And I know we were talking about this game a little bit after it happened Monday night. While I expected Buffalo to beat Tennessee, I did not anticipate a 34-point difference in terms of the amount of points they put up on the board. No, I don't think many people were expecting that either. Like, I was very surprised as well. But now, like, the Bills, they seem like from now on, like, they should be getting, like, college spread levels like maybe like a Georgia or something because they are like beating the brakes. Like look at what they did to the Rams, 31 to 10. The Titans, who was the number one team in the AFC last season, goes goes and beats them 41 to 7. This Bills team, they're they're going to be a problem. They're going to be a problem this year. And, they're the, and, of course, they are the favorites to win the AFC this year early on. But it is only – it's week three now. And there's, we still got 15 more weeks left, so it is subject to change. But right now the Bills are looking – unstoppable right now i mean when you're going out there and scoring 72 points in your first two games that's rightfully so i mean no but no other offense is keeping up with buffalo in terms of how many points they've scored and of course one of the main talking points of that game as well because of how out of hand it got late in the game mike vrabel opting to sit ryan Tannehill out for what was it, the final few minutes and going with Malik Willis? Mm-hmm. And that raised a lot of talking points because, you know, Malik Willis was supposed to be one of the highest 
quarterbacks taken in the 2022 draft class ended up not being taken until the third round. But what did you see out of Malik Willis? Well, he only threw the ball four times, only completing one pass. But he did ran, he ran the ball a good bit. He had four carries for 16 yards. But I liked what I saw from uh, Willis and his legs. And he did, like, some of his receivers just, they were on the receivers. They dropped passes they were wide open for. But Willis looked well. And Vrabel's done that before because when they had Marcus Mariota, who they drafted, I think, what, one? One uh, overall. He went second number overall. Two, number two overall. Jameis Winston yep, was James, one, and yep. then Mario did two. So he went second overall, and he moved on from him for Tannehill. So it's not unlike Vabral to do it because he has done it to the, in the past. So I wouldn't be shocked if Malik Willis would get some more playing time here in the upcoming weeks. And, you know, you brought up a good point there with going back to Mariota because Marcus Mariota was a very strong passer at Oregon. And he was also able to make plays, which is why he got taken second overall. When he got to the NFL, the arm didn't necessarily pan out the way coaches, executives of the front office would have thought, but he was still making the plays with his legs. They opted to bring in Tannehill, who was much more of a downfield passer, could make plays with his legs, but didn't necessarily rely on them. And then now they bring in Malik Willis, who is very similar to Mariota out of college with the arm and the legs. And now, of course, I know it was very limited time, but in the action that Malik Willis got, again, he was making more plays with his legs. So it's almost like the Titans don't necessarily even know what type of quarterback they want. Yeah, I have no idea what Tennessee is looking for. It feels like they're going back to like a Marietta type QB, a dual threat. But Tannehill can also do that as well, but like not too reliant on his legs, like you said. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they are. Uh, Tennessee is 0 2. Their next couple games, they got the Raiders this week. They go to the good in Indianapolis to play the Colts. Then they play the Commanders, the Colts again, and then at Houston. So they could they could very well start out 0 4, possibly. And if they do do that, I could see them possibly moving on from Tannehill in the upcoming weeks, like probably around the trade deadline, trade them somewhere. And I can see them sticking with Willis for the season. You don't think that they would just make the switch between Willis and Tannehill, and that way you have Tannehill as the backup, maybe somebody that could instruct Malik Willis? Yeah, it is a possibility, but I don't think they would do that. Because, mm-hmm. like, like I said, if they do start out like 0-4, how they, like they could. And I think they want Tannehill out, and if like they just go all in for Willis because they do think that is their next franchise guy. So I'd go all in and get what you can for Tannehill. So with that mentality in mind, which teams would you see possibly being suitors for Tannehill? I could I can see the Panthers possibly mm-hmm. as a suitor for him. Um, the Cowboys, if but if they do like Cooper Rush, then do that. But maybe Seattle as well mm-hmm. if they're not completely sold on Geno Smith. And yeah, I mean I, that's really it. Maybe the Colts, maybe, but. I don't know. I mean, all of those seem like realistic options. I think Carolina, for me, probably the least likely of the four just because, I mean, they have... They have Baker Mayfield. Yeah, they've got Darnold. They have Baker Mayfield. And so I think if Carolina starts to struggle with Baker Mayfield, then it's just going to be a matter of them turning to Sam Darnold and giving him the opportunity, which 
would be even more disastrous for the Panthers than it already is. But, I mean, that's just a mess they've got themselves into at this point. I mean, if for Dallas, it's just going to depend upon how soon does Dak Prescott come back. And then ultimately, once he does make his way off of injured reserve, is he going to be ready to go fresh off of injured reserve? Or are they going to have him, you know, take a week or so to slowly integrate himself back in? And then you mentioned you mentioned Seattle. I mean, Geno Smith looked absolutely fantastic on Monday Night Football against your Broncos. And then he goes into San Francisco last week. He can't eclipse 200 passing yards. He can't throw a touchdown pass. I mean, don't get me wrong. His completion percentage was 80%. But to me, that's that smells like a lot of five-yard checkdowns over the middle of the field, just like Steelers fans have seen with Mitch Trubisky. And that doesn't win you football games. And seven points sure as hell isn't going to win you football games either. Oh, yeah, that's true. And Seattle ain't expected to win that many games either. Yeah. And, of course, while Seattle, they also have Drew Locke sitting behind Geno Smith. I mean, I would much rather I would much rather have Tannehill over – Geno Smith or Drew Locke at this point. Oh, yeah. I think if you ask anyone in the NFL, they would most definitely take Tannehill over those two. And it's interesting you mentioned Dallas because even with Cooper Rush finding a way to defeat Cincinnati last week 20-17, to it was a bit of a nail-biter, but the Cowboys came out on top and, I mean, Cooper Rush didn't necessarily look all that bad for Dallas, and quite honestly, I think if he can just go out there and perform like he did against Cincinnati, he's going to keep Dallas in the thick of things and really kind of turn some heads, not necessarily because he's playing at an elite level, but just because he's keeping Dallas in the hunt, especially for the NFC East title, which is a very weak division. Yeah, like, if Cooper Rush does, like, if he plays what he did against the Bengals, he can keep the Cowboys competitive in all their upcoming games. Like, they play the Giants on Monday Night Football this week. They could very much win that game. And long as he does, because I think Dak comes back in what? Jerry Jones said, like, he'll come back in, like, three weeks. I think right around four three weeks. Three or four weeks. Well, now it'll be three. Yeah. So their next three games, they have the Giants, Commanders, and the Rams. So I think Cooper Rush can win two out of those three games, but... Even that, like you said, they beat the Bengals. They almost blew that game at the end. They were up 17-3 to at the beginning of the third quarter and ended up getting tied. They ended up getting tied around like three minutes left in the fourth, and they barely won that game. But like you said, Cooper Rush did play very well. Um, and then the Bengals. Bengals have to get that O-line fixed. Baker, I said Baker. Joe Burrow has been sacked 15 times in two weeks. That is uncalled for, especially with all the moves they made this offseason. They got Leo Collins. You draft a bunch of O-linemen. You add some other depth pieces in free agency. There should be no way you should be letting your franchise QB get sacked six, 15 times in the last two weeks. That is unacceptable. And, I mean, it's just it's much more of what we've seen from the Bengals. I mean, if you go back like we did last week, you know, you go back to the Super Bowl. Burrow got sacked seven times against the Rams. He got sacked seven times against the Steelers in week one. And now, what was it, eight against Dallas? Six. Or six. So then 20 sacks over the last three competitive games that Joe Burrow has played in. I mean, I know he's your franchise quarterback. I know you have a lot of faith in him. But 
my God, Cincinnati, are you trying to get him killed? Honestly, it's, like, it's what I think they're trying to do for Petey's sakes. I mean, you know, like you said, you invested so much in that offensive line, and it's still out there playing like trash because they cannot keep Joe Burrow. They cannot protect Joe Burrow. They can't keep a clean pocket for him. And it's only a matter of time before everybody gets a notification on their phones that says Joe Burrow is being carted to the locker room. I hate to say it, and I certainly don't want it to happen because Joe Burrow is a tremendous athlete, but they're not giving him the protection he needs, and it's only a matter of time before that happens, and the Bengals will have nobody to blame but themselves. Yeah, it's like an Andrew Luck situation, too. Hopefully that he doesn't have the same result as Andrew Luck because he did retire because that O-line was so bad. But I could see maybe him wanting to get out of Cincinnati if this O-line does not get any better. I personally, in speaking about the Bengals, think it's quite hilarious how much they are overreacting after dropping two games. I mean, yes, they very easily could be 2-0 and right now. Whether you want to say 2-0 and or 0-2, I mean... I get those are two different levels. They're two different opposite ends in terms of wins and losses. But really, their games against Dallas and Pittsburgh could yeah, have gone... field goal. Yeah. Each one. And they could have gone either way. And, you know, this is the Bengals team fresh off of a Super Bowl loss. Super Bowl hangover, possibly. And if you even meander your way a little bit into the Bengals fan base on Twitter or any other social media, they act like the world's ending. I mean, I wouldn't, like, I'd kind of be panicked if I was a Bengals fan. Just, like, the O-line is so bad and, like, defense giving up, well, 20-plus points and everything. But I would, if I was a Bengals fan, I would be panicked but not, like, too much because, granted, you have 15 more weeks and, like, their next couple games, you go to the Jets next, this upcoming week, you play the Dolphins on, on Thursday night football, then you go to Baltimore then New Orleans, and then the Falcons. They could, they could, they should win most of those games, but it all depends on that O-line. If that O-line protects Joe Burrow, the Bengals will win. If they do not, Bengals will more than likely lose. I agree completely, and that was why I was a little bit surprised, honestly, with how much they were freaking out by the two losses. Like you said, you know, Yes, it's a bit concerning to lose your first two games after going to the Super Bowl, the historic run they had last season. But there are still 15 more games that they can use to turn their season around. I mean, whoever wins the AFC North is going to probably end up with a record of, at the absolute best, 11-6. and six. Mm-hmm. So they have a lot of room to work with still in terms of being able to win the division at the very least, get a first-round home playoff game. And like you said, as long as they can find a way to fix that offensive line somehow, some way, even if their defense does give up 20, 23 points a game, that offense is very capable of going out there and putting up 30, 35 on a weekly basis. I mean, just look at, I mean, aside from Jamar Chase, you've got T. Higgins and Tyler Boyd. I mean, those three, that receiver trio one of the is, best receiver trios in the league. Exactly. They if they're not one of the if they're not the best, they're definitely one of the best. And it's just a matter of Joe Burrow having the 
time and space to get the ball to them because when Joe Burrow gets the ball to them, they make plays. And like you said, you know, the, the Bengals, they have a little bit of an easier stretch of games over the next few weeks, starting with the Jets, but... They did lose to the Jets last season. Mike, the legend of Mike White went in there. Yes. Game. So that'll some, be something to watch for, but I still think the Bengals have a lot to play for this season. Yes, you can be a little bit apprehensive, but it's not necessarily... It's not the end of the world. Time. Yes. So now looking ahead to week three, of course, one matchup down, 15 more to go. What matchups stand out to you this week in terms of ones to watch? So the mo- some games I think most people want to watch would be Bills and Dolphins. The Dolphins having that phenomenal comeback against the Ravens last week. And then you got um, the Rams and Cardinals should be a very good game. Probably game of the week, Packers and Bucks. Possibly the last time we'll see Tom Brady versus Aaron Rodgers. And then the Sunday night football game, the 49ers and the Broncos. Yeah, that. And and another dark horse good game, Lions-Vikings. Really? I think that game will be very well. Lions, Mm -hmm. of course, winning their first game last week against the Commanders and the Vikings, coming off an embarrassing loss on Monday night football to the Eagles, which Kirk Cousins is now 2-10 on Monday night football. So I think now it's not a primetime game for the – I think the Vikings sneak out of there. They'll probably win 31-28. But the Lions are – they're a team to look out for because they are very – they're a very good football team. Mm Mm-hmm. Certainly, certainly much improved under Dan Campbell. That's yeah, for sure. Love Dan I mean, Campbell. He's such a he's such a relatable guy too, though, and I think that's what draws a lot of people to him. Is that you know he's the guy that you want to see do well, not just because he's the coach of the Lions and their fans have suffered, suffered enough for years, but he just something about him just gives off the average American citizen vibes, and you want him to go out there and succeed. Oh yeah. But that the Packers Bucks game, I mean, I'm honestly a little bit surprised when the schedule was made that they didn't put that game on Sunday Night Football. Yeah, I was very surprised as well. They didn't flex it in because honestly, I'd rather have Packers and Bucks than the 49ers or Broncos. I mean, like you said, potential last meeting between Rodgers and Brady, the two guys who have been compared their entire careers in regards to who was the best quarterback of the generation. I mean, obviously Pats and Bucks fans have this Super Bowl argument, but there's certainly a case for Aaron Rodgers in terms of sheer statistics. And for that game to not be in prime time is a little bit shocking. Yeah, regular season, I'd take Aaron Rodgers. Come postseason time, I'm taking Tom Brady. And see, I would... I would agree with that completely, you know. I mean, don't get me wrong. Tom Brady hasn't played poorly in a regular season. But Rodgers is just an entirely different level in the regular season. And then, like you said, Brady, when it comes time for the playoffs, he's just... just goes to another level. just to another level. And I don't know what it is, but just something about the adrenaline rush of the playoffs really gets him going. And then you mentioned the... Bills Dolphins game as well. And of course those two offenses are at a different level. We already touched on the Buffalo offense, but 
Miami's offense, I still think, is being slept on a little bit. Oh, yeah, everyone's sleeping on, especially because of Tua, because everyone's, like, hating on Tua. Now what he did last week, throwing for dang near 600 yards and six touchdowns, everyone's starting to go on the bandwagon train of the Tua Tugavailoa. But I've been a huge Tua fan ever since he got drafted because I'm a Bama fan, so I saw him in college. And I don't know why everyone was hating on Tua. He's one of the most winningest QBs out of, like, young QBs and one of the mm-hmm. most winningest ones. And he's not bad. Yes, he makes some poor decisions, but now he actually has a coach who believes in him and trusts him to do the right things. Mm-hmm. And this Dolphins team is going to be very well. It's probably going to be a playoff team. And, and both are 2-0 and going into Absolutely. I mean, I just went back quickly and looked at the stats from that Baltimore game. And the fact that, you know, I knew Tua went out there and threw six touchdown passes. But for Baltimore to concede 469 yards through the air is just absolutely absurd. And, you know, in the Tua Tua discussion, there is so much, you know, people trying to criticize Tua because for whatever reason, and you know this firsthand, there's this belief that, Left-handed quarterbacks can't succeed in the NFL. It's false. And I don't know I don't know where that narrative came from. I don't know if it's because the last even half decent left-handed quarterback was Tim Tebow. But I mean, look back even further. Aside from his off-the-field issues, Michael Vick was a solid left-handed quarterback. Oh, yeah, one of the best left-handed QBs in the league. And then even going further behind that, beyond that, there were several solid left-handed quarterbacks. And I was, actually, I was on Twitter one day, and somebody, somehow, some way, was able to flip the screen from the Miami-Baltimore game and make it as if Tua was a right-handed quarterback. And everybody in the comments, like you said, jumping on the bandwagon of, having their brains blown because the spiral seems tighter coming out of a right-handed throwing quarterback. The accuracy somehow seems better coming out of a right-handed throwing arm. No, the accuracy and the spiral have been there the whole time. Mm -hmm. You're just trying to find something to prove yourself to be right. And yes, don't get me wrong. There were times, even in training camp, where Tua probably underthrew Tyreek Hill by yeah, three to five yards. That one everyone was talking about, Ty- Tyreek was on a streak, and mm-hmm. he underthrew him bad. And everyone was like, oh, it's going to be the same year as the last couple of years. And like, yeah, he has some accurate issues. All QBs have it. But that was his big knock and everything, and then plus his turnovers. But Yeah. But in a way, and while, of course, every receiver in the league is fast, nobody in terms of a receiver is at the speed of Tyreek Hill. Oh, no. So, quite personally, I think that video that got released during training camp was Tua still trying to figure out, you know, where he needed to place the ball Mm -hmm. to get on the same page with Tyreek Hill. And it was probably a little bit expected from the Dolphins that there would be times where he underthrew Tyreek Hill because of his speed. If it was Jalen Waddle, Tua's hitting him in stride, and it's six points. Oh, yeah. And I think that... You know, like you said, the Dolphins have finally found the Tua that they drafted. It took a little bit of time to get him to settle in. Of course, he was sharing some playtime at one point with Ryan Fitzpatrick. 
But like you said, Tua has settled in. He's showing off at an elite level. And that QB matchup with him and Josh Allen is going to be one to watch. Yeah. And then back to the Baltimore game. That Baltimore defense, that is that is not like Baltimore's defense. If you look at Baltimore's like history on defense, they have had elite defenses there all through the franchise, and that was quite an embarrassing performance by the defense on Sunday. And I mean, on that same note, the Ravens defense they did not concede a whole lot of yardage on the ground. It was 86 yards on the ground. Raheem Mostert with 51 of the 86 himself. So, in a way, you can't really blame the front seven. Yeah, mostly it was the secondary, like corners not covering Tyree Kill or getting t- toasted by him. Mm-hmm. Miscommunications on what man has what. It was very embarrassing for the Ravens secondary, and they better fix fix this unless it's going to be a long season. Lamar Jackson played a dang near pitch perfect game. Only eight incompletions, 318 yards, three passing touchdowns, then leading the team in rushing with 119 yards and a rushing touchdown. Yeah, Lamar Jackson certainly did more than he needed to there, and they still lost the game. But, you know, you look at the receiving stats from Miami. Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle each had 11 receptions, each had two touchdowns. Tyreek Hill, 190 receiving yards, Jalen Waddle, 171. It's bad enough if your defense allows one receiver to get close to 200 receiving yards. But to have two of them get near 200 receiving yards, I mean, that is just pathetic from Baltimore's secondary. I mean, I don't know what has gotten into them, what their issue is. And, I mean, that's a secondary that still has Marcus Peters. Marcus Peters, Marcus Williams, Marlon Humphrey, Kyle Hamilton. So that secondary is not bad. It's a one of the – I think it's one of the best secondaries in the league. On paper. On paper, they're insane. But they had the they had Odafi Owe and Patrick Queen trying to guard Tyree Kill on some plays. I was like, what are y'all doing? Like that is a huge mismatch, even with Jalen Waddle. They're both speed demons and they just cooked them. I mean, I've said it before and I'll say it again. It's bad enough when you try to have a middle linebacker like Patrick Queen trying to cover a tight end like Mike Kosicki. Who's not slow either. No. Patrick Queen is very fast for a linebacker. But with the way the league is changing, you can't have a linebacker in coverage on a tight no. end anymore. And to then turn around and have a linebacker in coverage against Tyree Tyree Hill, the Hill, fastest man in the NFL. Or even Jalen Waddle. I mean, what on earth is going on in Baltimore? I don't know what that defensive coordinator is doing, but I know he needs to fix it. I've seen something that uh, some of the Ravens um, alumni, like Ray Lewis and Ed Reed, they they came into the building this past week and sat the defense down and gave them a nice stern talking to about that performance on Sunday. So I expect things to change. I, I can only imagine. I mean, first of all, if I was a player for the Baltimore Ravens and – Ray Lewis and Terrell Suggs, even Ed Reed, if they all walked in the room with death stares on their face, I would probably be on the verge of bursting into tears because you know what they're about to say. And 
I mean, their defensive coordinator, Don Martindale, is really under some pressure right away. And, you know, they were very quick to move on from, was it Greg Roman? Yeah. They're very quick to move on from him, saying that he was the issue with the defense. They go out over the past two years. They invest high draft picks in Patrick Queen along with Kyle Hamilton. And now, look, you're still giving up almost 500 yards through the air. So, you know, they always think the grass is green on the other side. And maybe Greg Roman was a part of the problem. But he is absolutely not the entire problem. No, but it is a new defensive coordinator. But I think, like I said, there's still 15 more weeks. I think they will get this problem fixed very soon. Because if not, whew, it's going to be a long season for the Ravens. Absolutely. They have quite the season ahead of them. And if I were the Ravens, I would be much more worried about how the season's going to go than the Bengals. Because oh yeah, the Bengals, they have their issues, but the Ravens' issues are... An entirely different level. Yes. And so I think that, honestly, every team in the AFC North has issues, and a good bit of them. It's just a matter of how they all respond, and that's really going to dictate how that division fares this season. Yeah. That division is going to be a t- tough race this year. It's going to be tough. I completely agree. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Beth the Online Radio. Step aside for a few minutes, and when we return... A little bit of soccer talk discussing the Pittsburgh Riverhounds right here on the Bethany Online Radio. Turn up. 
here on the Three Rivers Talk Show. As I mentioned before the break, looking at the Pittsburgh Riverhounds and their quest for USL Championship glory once again. Of course, the Riverhounds, they don't have that many games left this season. They've got a contest tomorrow night at home, Highmark Stadium, taking on Orange County. They have three more games after that, including some relatively tough opposition. Hosting San Antonio on October 1st, and then finishing out the season with two tough opponents that are going to be in Sacramento, and then hosting Oakland. So... Three of the final four games for the Riverhounds are at home. But when you look at those teams positioning in the Western Conference, you've got San Antonio, who is in first place right now in the Western Conference. You've got Sacramento, who is fourth. Oakland is eighth. And then Orange County is in 13th. So you've got... One at the very bottom, you've got a middle of the pack, and then you have two top four teams in the Western Conference that are really going to make things difficult for the Riverhounds. In a way, it's nice because it gives Bob Lilly one or multiple, rather, final tests before the playoffs that'll give the Riverhounds a strong idea of where they stand. But the Riverhounds are in a position where they do not have a lot of room for error. 
because they currently sit fifth place right now in the Eastern Conference, 52 points. The Tampa Bay Rowdies are in third place with 54 points, tied with Birmingham Legion. But the Rowdies have an extra game to play over Birmingham, over Pittsburgh, and then Memphis 901 FC is even in a better spot, 58 points with a game in hand over Pittsburgh, Birmingham, and Louisville, who are leading the way in the East. So realistically, the Riverhounds can technically still finish anywhere between second and seventh. Of course, they technically can mathematically surpass Louisville, but Louisville City have 63 points compared to the Riverhounds' 52, meaning that the Riverhounds would have to win out and Louisville City would have to essentially lose out for the Riverhounds to potentially move up ahead of them. And, of course, that doesn't even have any sort of idea based upon what would happen with Memphis, Tampa Bay, or Birmingham. But I mentioned that the Riverhounds, they could fall down to either 6th or 7th. You have Detroit City, who is right behind the Riverhounds at 50 points. And then right behind Detroit, you have Miami FC with 48 points. So there's not a whole lot of wiggle room for the Riverhounds to go out there and be able to afford to drop a contest. It's something that is a situation that you want to embrace, but it's also a scenario in which you don't necessarily want to be in recognizing what's at stake. I mean, it very well could turn out to be a fight to the end for the Riverhounds until they have an idea of where they are going to end up in the standings because it's the top eight teams in each conference that make it to the USL championship playoffs. And for the Riverhounds especially, I mean, their next game on tomorrow night is the easiest of them all. And as the schedule progresses down through the middle of October, they've got the two hardest games right in the middle, and then they finish with Oakland, who is the mid-table side. And the Roots aren't going to be an easy test for the Riverhounds either. So it's going to be an opportunity for Bob Lilly to really see where the Riverhounds stand, figure out who they are ultimately going to play, which may not necessarily be even known until the regular season ends. And then at that point, you've got to prepare. You've always got to mentally prepare it now at this point that your playoff game could very well be at home or it could very easily be on the road. If the playoffs started today, the Riverhounds are heading to Birmingham Legion. And they're more than likely their entire playoff run would be on the road. 
if they can find a way to move up the standings a little bit, then they would have the opportunity to host maybe a team like Birmingham or Detroit. If Tampa Bay falls, they can host Tampa Bay even. It's still very undecided how the USL Eastern Conference is going to see itself pan out. And, of course, the Riverhounds are looking for the opportunity to not only get back to the postseason, which they've already clinched, but do so in a way in which they can make a deep run. Because the Riverhounds are falling into a very similar scenario in which the Penguins see themselves in. In that they make it to the playoffs every year, they do extremely well in the regular season, and then they get to the playoffs and have nothing to show for it. Now, unlike the NHL playoffs, the USL championship playoffs are similar in terms of structure to the NFL. It's a one-game winner-take-all. There's no best-of X number of games in a series. There's no sort of like European style where they do a home-and-home and and whoever wins on aggregate moves on. No, this is classic winner-take-all. Those who come out on top survive. Those who fall are done for the season. And it makes things that much more difficult for the Riverhounds in terms of not being able to have that game in which they struggle because if you struggle one game in a best of seven series in the NHL, it's, oh, it's just one game. It's going to take a little bit to overcome that, but we can still get around it. No, if you struggle for even 45 minutes in a winner-take-all game of soccer, that could be what sends you home. If you struggle for the first half and 30 minutes of a football game, that 30 minutes could be what sends you home, and you don't get a taste at the Super Bowl. It's the same thing here for the USL Championship because that is what has made the Riverhounds not be successful to this point is that they do well in the regular season, they get the opportunity to go into the playoffs, and they haven't been able to get it done, whether it's been at home or on the road. And I'm certainly not at the point where I'm ready to you know, start pointing the finger at Bob Lilly because the Riverhounds, quite honestly, wouldn't be in this spot if it wasn't for him. But it's one of those things now where it's, okay, you've gotten them to the playoffs. You've been here for, this is your fifth season now. Now's the time that you have to start taking it to the next level. You have to find a way to even if it's just winning one playoff game, you win the first round game, you fall in the Eastern semis, and then you say, okay, next year, the goal is to win the Eastern semis. Year-by-year progression is all it takes. The old adage of Rome wasn't built in a day still applies for the Riverhounds. You know, it took time for them to get to the level where they are a consistent playoff contender. Now it's just going to take time for them to really start to emerge themselves as a serious USL championship 
team that can go in year in and year out and find a way to come out on top. I'm very much a believer in that the Riverhounds can do just that. I think it's something that is going to take some work for them to do, but it's certainly something that can be done. And if I am Bob Lilly and the Riverhounds, now is the time where you have to start looking to the MLS. And, you know, guys who are in the MLS, maybe on a bench somewhere, whether it be with the Seattle Sounders or a team like New York Red Bulls with their first team, maybe even Columbus Crew or FC Cincinnati, Orlando City. You've got to find guys at the MLS level who maybe aren't necessarily getting as many minutes as they would like. And then you approach them with a contract offer and say, you know, here's your chance to get consistent minutes. We think you can be a strong part of a USL championship winning team. You come here, you prove yourself. And then you sign, could potentially sign elsewhere with another MLS team and get yourself more minutes. Kind of like in baseball with a reclamation project. I don't want to say that a player on the bench in the MLS would be a reclamation project because they're still under contract. They're still getting some time in the game. But that may be what it takes for the Riverhounds and Bob Lilly to have to do because... While, yes, they were able to get Robbie Mertz back from Atlanta, too. Atlanta United, too, I should say. You're not going to be able to succeed and take it one step further in the USL if it's just a matter of teams swapping back and forth USL players. I mean, at that point, then, it's just a, it's just a drawing of who gets the luckiest and who ends up with the best players. You know, you've got to go out there and get creative or I don't know necessarily if it's within the budget of the Riverhounds, but start bringing in players from Europe. You know, if somebody's playing in the third division over in Belgium, try to get them to come to the USL. They're one step away from the MLS. They've got the international experience. They've got the talent to even be playing in the third division of Belgium. You know, go out, try to bring them in. Or if there's somebody playing in the second division of Spain, which might be a little bit more difficult to go out and grab because a lot of times the second division players in any European league are those who get loaned from teams in the top flight. But there's got to be guys that aren't players who are loaned, you can go out and try to recruit them. And while it may be more difficult from a league like the second league of Spain, but still you have to go out and try to make that effort. And I think if the Riverhounds take that initiative, take that step forward, and they may already be trying to do that. But once the signings start to happen and they happen more consistently, you will see the Riverhounds take off. You will see them get much better and become a serious contender for the USL Championship. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. When we return, it is Pittsburgh Steelers from here to the end, looking at 
in depth the past two weeks against the Patriots and the Browns, and then what truly does need to change right here on the Three Rivers Talk Show.
Taylor back on the Three Rivers Talk Show, looking now at the Pittsburgh Steelers and what has truly gone wrong these past two weeks. The short answer being what hasn't gone wrong for them. And I'm not saying that to be facetious because it hasn't gone the Steelers' way. I mean, let's be honest here. What could have gone wrong for them the past two weeks has gone wrong. You have the Patriots game last week on Sunday. The Steelers only able to put up 14 points, did not even score a touchdown until the fourth quarter when Fryermuth caught the eight-yard pass from Trubisky. Prior to that drive, it was just a pair of field goals from Chris Boswell. Now, mind you, this was also the home opener. So that really hurt the Steelers. The offense could not get going. The offensive line was struggling to block for both Trubisky and the running backs. The defense could not apply any pressure whatsoever to Mac Jones. And I don't want to say Mac Jones carved up the Steelers defense because he only threw for one touchdown, but he did have 252 passing yards. He sat at an even 60% completion percentage. The team then gave up 124 yards on the ground. So they gave up their fair share of yards, 376 to be exact. And New England only had 17 points to show for it. So whether you want to say it's the bend but don't break mentality, that's fine. But the Steelers still gave up too many yards in that game. You look at last night's contest in Cleveland that was, to be quite frank, a disaster. You know, I mean, the Steelers, the offense looked a little better. Trubisky was finally taking shots down the field. He was spreading the offense a little bit, which was a rather interesting surprise to see. But the offense still was not making enough plays. The offensive drives were still stalling out when they needed to be producing touchdowns or at the very least producing points in any way, shape, or form. I mean, the Steelers had three consecutive possessions in the second half where they went three and out. Even if those drives just result in field goals, the Steelers don't have to worry about the lateral, whatever you want to call that, desperation, I guess, at the end of the game. Because if those three drives turn into field goals, you're walking away from that game with a 26-23 win. And while it might not necessarily change everything about how the Steelers would be looked at right now, it would be in a much higher way than it is currently. Or if the Steelers even turn one of those three drives into a touchdown and Boswell tacks on the extra point, you come away with a 24-23 win. Or maybe you need a last-minute field goal from Boswell to get you to win 
27, 26, or something along those lines. But the point is that it still was not good enough from the Steelers' offense. And, you know, I said it last week as well, and I'll say it again. Najee Harris continues to be a rather disappointment through the first three weeks of this season. And, you know, I get the first two weeks. The offensive line wasn't necessarily playing at its best. I get that. But Najee Harris has not done anything to showcase that he was a first-round pick-worthy running back, and he has not done anything to demonstrate that he should be continuing to get the bulk of the carries. I understand that last season he ran for about 1,200 yards. But my God, he had over 300 carries. Of course he should run for over 1,200 yards. Last night against the Browns, 15 carries for 56 yards. Average of 3.7. You go back to Sunday's game against the Patriots, and you look at Najee Harris's stats, 15 carries, 49 yards, an average of 3.3. And then you go all the way back to Cincinnati, 10 carries, 23 yards, an average of 2.3. So Najee Harris, through three weeks, has had a highest tally of 3.7 yards per carry. I realize that running backs are not what they used to be and that the game is changing. But Najee Harris has not been helping the Steelers whatsoever. I mean, especially when you look at that New England game, the very first play from scrimmage, there was a huge hole on the left side through the B-gap that was created between Kevin Dotson and Dan Moore Jr. All Najee Harris had to do was hit the hole, and he was through for five, six, possibly even more yardage if he got into the secondary. But what does he do instead? Cuts to the right, tries to bounce it outside, and he gets a yard. And that's the story of what Najee Harris has done for a lot of his carries, is that he quite honestly only gets a yard or two. And I know that maybe there's a little bit of hesitancy with Najee Harris in a lack of trust for his offensive line because he knows that in the past they haven't been able to create the holes that he needs. So in a way it's almost second nature for him to try and bounce it to the outside. But at this point now, he has to take that step forward and start to trust his offensive line has to start recognizing that they are going to make the plays for him and start to be aware of the fact that the Steelers are investing in the offensive line and it's going to get better. And now it's up to Najee Harris to make the difference going forward and turn what would originally be a two-yard gain into a six or a seven. I mean, it has to be done sooner rather than later because 
The Steelers' offense, in the past, I used to say it was one-dimensional. Now, it's more like half-dimensional because there's zero run game, and Mitch Trubisky and the offense in the passing game have quite a few struggles of their own, and that's putting it generously because Matt Canada is a disaster right now. The calls for him to be fired have already started. Mitch Trubisky hasn't been playing well at all. The calls for Kenny Pickett have already started. I mean, for crying out loud, Sunday against New England, a we want Kenny chant breaks out at Akersher Stadium. I mean, I get that the fans are frustrated. I do. But at the same time, though, you also have to be realistic. If Tomlin thought Pickett was the best quarterback on the team, he would have started him from week one. If Tomlin thought Matt Canada was over his head, he would find a new play caller. Like I mentioned earlier, when Dylan was in here with me, the Steelers have a lot that they need to change. Will it all get changed in once? No. Hopefully, though, it's something that gets changed over time and can be something that the team does moving forward so that, as Tomlin has always liked to say, you're playing your best football when the postseason comes around. I think that's a positive mentality for Tomlin to have, but it needs to start being improved upon now so that it can happen where you're playing your best football as the postseason rolls around. You know, right now, this Steelers team is far from their best football. Over the past two seasons, and this was just tweeted out not so long ago by Dan Orlovsky of ESPN, the Steelers have had the worst run defense in the NFL the past two seasons. I don't care how talented your offense is. I don't care how many points they can put up in a game. If the defense cannot stop the run, if the defense cannot stop anything for that matter, then you're never going to win. Because all it's going to take is for that opposing defensive coordinator to contain the offense, and you're done. So I think the three biggest changes, you know, I'll even bump it up to four. The four biggest changes going forward, Trubisky, more shots down the field, more shots over the middle of the field. Matt Canada, first of all, get your head out of your rear end and then put Trubisky in a position to be successful where he has the freedom if he wants to change the play at the line of scrimmage, has the freedom to take shots down the field on a regular basis, and can do so in a way in which he hits his receivers so that they're all on the same page. Because Deontay Johnson, Chase Claypool, George Pickens, and Pat Fryermuth have all been critical of the offense so far. 
and that's a direct result of Matt Canada. On the defensive side, you have to find a way to stop the run. It doesn't matter whether TJ's in there or not, because even with TJ Watt, the Steelers have still struggled to stop the run. But you've got to find a way to do it. That's why Miles Jack was brought in. That's why Larry Ogunjobi was brought in. DeMarvin Leal was drafted. You've got to find a way to stop the run. And then on another note, defense has to focus on wrapping guys up and bringing them down. So many drives were extended last night. And so many plays in which it should have been a three, maybe four-yard gain turn into eight, nine, ten plus because the Steelers simply cannot just wrap up their guy and bring him to the ground. They're trying to shove him. They're trying to, you know, throw him down with an, with an arm stuck out where they just run into the arm and hit the floor. That's not going to work. You physically have to wrap them up and throw them to the ground because the Steelers didn't do that last night, and that's why the Bengal, rather the Browns had so many drives be extended. The same thing happened not necessarily in as large of a quantity as the Bengals and the Patriots game, but it still happened in those games as well, and it has to absolutely change. Otherwise, it's going to be much of the same for the Steelers moving forward. We'll step aside here briefly on the Three Rivers Talk Show. When we return, more Steelers talk, looking at an in-depth in-depth review of Mitch Trubisky's first three weeks and if this continues, at what point might we see Kenny Pickett coming up next here on the Three Rivers Talk Show?
We're back on the Three Rivers Talk Show for the final segment. Again, looking at the Pittsburgh Steelers. Mitch Trubisky, his first three weeks as the starting quarterback for the team, to be quite frank, haven't necessarily gone as planned. As I mentioned earlier, last week against the Browns was just the first time in which Trubisky has thrown for over 200 yards in a game this season. Now, I understand, you know, the Steelers might have this idea with him where they just don't want him to go out there and throw the ball for the hell of it. I get that. But at the same time, though, Trubisky has to be throwing the ball deeper down the field much further than what he was and what he what he has done to this point. You know, there's one play specifically that I can think of. It was in the New England Patriots game. Towards the end of it, it was a third and eight. Trubisky was out of the shotgun. Pat Fryermuth ran a seam route right up the middle of the field. And Mitch Trubisky never even looked his direction. Not once. Trubisky got the snap, immediately looked to his left, and checked it down to Najee Harris, running an out route from the backfield. And third and eight turned into about fourth and six. And the Steelers ended up punting. That was a play where Trubisky didn't necessarily have the greatest protection from his offensive line. But it doesn't take a lot of time needed for the play to develop with Fryermuth running a seam over the middle. It doesn't take a lot of time for that check down that he threw to develop either. Which tells me right then and there, it was predetermined in Trubisky's head that he was wanting to find Najee Harris out of the backfield and hope that Najee Harris could make something happen and try to pick up the first down. Never once looking the direction of Pat Fryermuth. Never looking even towards George Pickens, Chase Claypool, Deontay Johnson. Not to say that they were open on that play, but it was thought out in his head from the snap, I'm finding Najee Harris. And I wouldn't be surprised if there wasn't some sort of dialogue between Trubisky and Harris of Trubisky saying, be ready, I'm coming to you. So that Najee Harris knew that as soon as he turned around out of the backfield, the ball was pretty much going to be in his hands. And that's what we've seen from Trubisky the first three weeks. And like I said, you know, Trubisky is out there taking care of the football from the perspective that he is not turning it over. I mean, I'll go back week by week. He did not throw an interception against the Bengals. He didn't fumble it at all. You look at week two against the Patriots. He threw one interception against the Patriots. Did not fumble. And then you look at last night against Cleveland. No interceptions. 
did not fumble. So through three games, Mitch Trubisky has only turned the ball over once, which is a very respectable element to his game. He protects the football and does so very well. However, I would not be opposed to seeing an interception per game or an interception every other game if it meant he was throwing for 250, 300 yards a game, had multiple touchdowns, passing touchdowns, that is, in each game. I mean, he's thrown two passing touchdowns through three games. One to Pat Fryermuth, one to Najee Harris. That can't happen in this Steelers offense. The Steelers offense needs more from Trubisky in order to be successful. And by a, by more, I mean a lot more. Because they're not going to find a way down the field more often if the drives continue to stall out. And that's a lot of what's happening is that it's not even a matter of the Steelers are moving the ball down the field, they're getting into field goal range, and then the drive stalls out there, so it's three points instead of seven. The Steelers are lucky at this point if they're getting themselves into field goal range for Boswell. The drives are stalling out in areas where they cannot be stalling out. Behind the 50-yard line, between midfield and the opposing 40, right in that range where it's a bit too far for a field goal, but also too close to try and punt. I mean, that's where the Steelers are having their drive stall out. And that's a problem going forward if Mitch Trubisky cannot find a way to be more accurate, cannot find a way to be more aggressive, and then also have the trust of his offensive coordinator and head coach. I mean, that is an absurd thing to me that after the Patriots game, Mitch Trubisky was asked if he had the freedom to call an audible whenever he wanted. And Trubisky's answer was no. What do you mean, no? I know that Trubisky was answering the question honestly. But what head coach, what offensive coordinator puts their starting quarterback who they signed in the offseason with the intentions of having him start? Which coaches go to their quarterback and say, you are not going to have the freedom to call an audible whenever you want? Is that Matt Canada trying to assert his dominance? Because he knew that the only time the Steelers moved the ball last season was in the fourth quarter when Ben called the plays himself. Is that Mike Tomlin not necessarily having the complete trust of Mitch Trubisky? I mean, what is it? And why are the Steelers not allowing Trubisky to have a full reign of the offense? You do not need your quarterback going out there and being limited with what he can and can't do. For instance, this is a sheer hypothetical. Third and five, Trubisky lines up. He's got three receivers to his right, 
One to his left. Najee's in the shotgun. Najee's lined up to his left in the shotgun. If Trubisky recognizes that the Ravens are going to show blitz on third and five, he can he should have the freedom to pull Pat Fryermuth as one of the three lined up to his right, bring him in to block more for the Steelers, give him some extra protection. If he sees Marcus Peters lined up on the inside shoulder of George Pickens and Pickens is supposed to run a slant route between the hash marks, Trubisky should have the freedom and the leadership, which he does have the leadership, just not the freedom. He should have the freedom to audible Pickens to run a five-yard out route towards the sideline, move the chains, and then also counter the positioning of Marcus Peters, who's lined up on his inside shoulder. And again, that is a sheer hypothetical, but it's the point of that hypothetical that I'm trying to make. It should be the fact that Trubisky has the offensive freedom to go out there and do what he pleases. If the Steelers, whether it's Matt Canada, Mike Tomlin, if they do not have the freedom or if they do not have the trust in Mitch Trubisky to give him the freedom to run the offense, then why the hell did you sign him? Because other than the fact that you needed a quarterback and you needed a body, I mean, that's really what it sounds like to me with the fact that that's what they're trying to do. And if that's the case with the fact that you want you wanted Trubisky to just be a body, then you had that on your team already in Mason Rudolph. Because the way that Trubisky is operating the offense right now, whether it's his fault or not, you could get that out of Mason Rudolph. And then the $7 million per year that you're paying Trubisky could then be could then have been reinvested into bolstering the offensive line even more. And I'm not ready to go out there and say that Trubisky's pick or Trubisky's signing was unjustified by the Steelers. I'm not ready to say that Pickett's selection was a waste by the Steelers. All I'm trying to say is, is that if the Steelers are going to expect Trubisky to keep doing what he's done all season, then they didn't need to go out and bring him in when there were guys on the roster who were very capable of doing just that. Even Dwayne Haskins, before his tragic accident, Dwayne Haskins could probably go out there and put up very similar numbers to what Trubisky is putting up at the given moment. And again, whether that's because the coaching staff doesn't trust him or if that's just who Mitch Trubisky is, only time will tell. And another thing, too, about Trubisky, every throw he makes is off of his back foot. Now, 
it looks like as a result of those throws coming off of his back foot, he's not getting as much power in his throws as he should. He's not getting the loft in his throws like he should. And sometimes they don't even have as tight of a spiral as they should because he's throwing off of his back foot, which is his right, when he drops back to pass. And I get that that may have worked for him to this point, but it's something that needs to change because he's not getting the results that he once did. And I think moving forward, Trubisky needs to start working with quarterbacks coach Mike Sullivan a little bit more and finding a way to start throwing off of that front foot, getting more power involved. And if he can do that, then he can be a little bit more aggressive with taking shots down the field and over the middle of the field. Now, every week that Trubisky goes out there and continues to perform the same way or pretty much the same way, the pressure on Mike Tomlin to turn to Kenny Pickett is going to grow greater and greater by the week, if not by the day. And while I understand the concerns with Trubisky and the offense, Trubisky truly isn't the entire problem with the Steelers offensively. Yes, there are elements to his game in which are a part of the issue, but they're not the entire problem. And everybody thinks, and I knew this was going to happen because Pickett was a first-round quarterback who played at Pitt. Everybody thinks Pickett is going to go in there, take over for Trubisky, and it's going to be this miracle. The offense is going to turn itself around and Pickett is going to lead this team to the Super Bowl. That is the nonsense that a lot of Steelers fans currently believe. Or at the very least, they have this notion that because Pickett's the future, you might as well throw him in because he can't do any worse than Trubisky. I don't know which of those two thought processes is more stupid because neither of them make a whole lot of sense. So what, you just want to throw pick it into the deep end like a three-year-old without floaties and just try to have him swim when the entire preseason he went against second stringers at best or you just want to throw him in because you know the last time a rookie quarterback got thrown into the fire which was Ben Roethlisberger that he embraced it and went on an incredible run of winning 14 consecutive starts the only game that the Steelers lost when Ben played his rookie year was the game in which he came in against Baltimore which I wouldn't necessarily even consider that loss to be on him so when you look at the games he started he won 14 in a row it doesn't matter who the player is as a quarterback whether it's Kenny Pickett whether it's the next coming of Tom Brady the fact that a quarterback came in and won 14 straight games as a rookie was very rare. It may never happen again. Ben Roethlisberger has pretty much set NFL history for right now with that 
accomplishment. And so it's going to be a while before Kenny Pickett truly gets his opportunity. If it were up to Mike Tomlin and the Steelers, Pickett wouldn't see the field at all this season pending injury, of course, because they really want him to develop. And I know there's somebody out there saying he's 24 years old, he doesn't need to develop. Just because he's 24 years old doesn't mean that he's going to drastically make the jump from college football to the NFL. That's not how it works. And I personally think it's one of those scenarios where Tomlin is going to give Trubisky up until the bye week and reevaluate how the season is going. The Steelers are in a fortunate spot this year. It's an 18-week-long season with 17 games in a bye. The Steelers' bye week is in week nine. So with eight games played, Tomlin will have a general idea of how the season is going to go. If the Steelers are even remotely close to still being in contention, you know, five and three, four and four, I'll even throw in possibly three and five if there's some close games that are a one-score possession, kind of like the Bengals game, but the Steelers come out on the opposite side of it. I would not be surprised if Tomlin stuck with Trubisky. However, if the Steelers go into that bye week, two and six, one and seven, so help me God if they go into that bye week, one and seven. At that point, I think Tomlin would make the change and go to Pickett because then that would give Pickett two full weeks to really learn the offense even more so than he has to this point. And it would give him two full weeks to get ready for his first NFL game. And that's why there's a lot of calls for Pickett now because it's almost like a mini bye week when you go from playing on Thursday to then not playing until the following Sunday with 10 days in between games. But it's still too early in the season to make that switch to Kenny Pickett when you've invested $14 million over two seasons to Mitch Trubisky. It's going to do it for us here today on the Three Rivers Talk Show. Be sure to tune in once again next Friday at 2 o'clock as we continue to bring the latest of Pittsburgh sports here on the Bethany Online Radio. Hopefully, a little bit more positives will come out of the Steelers. Have an idea, if we don't already, of some possible changes that the team might be making. Be sure to talk about that as a large segment of the show. Once again, tune in next Friday at 2 o'clock for the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, Pittsburgh Pirates, and more. Drew Von Sayo signing off. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, everybody.